Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Conquering Columbus podcast. And uh, I'm Mike, one of your co-hosts. We got Tim and Josh here in the booth. What's going on, guys? Hello. Hello. Yo. You know, I have this problem where I start every podcast off exactly the same way. I get in a habit and I got to gotta get out of that, right? Like it's the same intro every time or maybe maybe people appreciate the consistency. Probably not. Uh, <laughs> you guys both paused after I said that and I knew that that was not the case. I just didn't have a passionate response either way. You don't care? You know, Tim's like, It's not dude. that I don't care. I'm just not passionate either way. Right. Hey, you know, and there you go. Well, uh, what's going on in Columbus right now? Other than the fact that we're buried in man six inches of snow. I'm exhausted. That's all I know. Yeah. A little tired. Yeah. A little tired. Well, wait, isn't uh so Get my Blue Jacket just made some moves. Yeah. Actually, tonight we- Lane's coming in, right? Isn't he? Yeah. Patrick Line. Line? Is that how you say his name? I called him Lane and then I've, I've been here in Line. So- Line. That's yeah. that, that doesn't look right. He says Sounds his name wrong. fancy. <laughs> uh, but yeah, then we had Jack Roslevic who also came in that trade, yeah. who's a Columbus native. Uh, mm-hmm. So my friends grew up playing with him. So that was kind of fun to see that homecoming. But uh, Line has passed his quarantine, his tests and everything. And I believe he makes his debut tonight in about 11 minutes. Okay. Well, we better get this intro done quick. So I'm excited to see what they look like, man. Yeah. Make some moves. They're playing Dallas tonight at 7, 7.30 maybe. And uh, yeah, it's his debut. He's a big goal scorer. He's the number two draft pick in that draft, the same draft of Dubois that we sent over. So we sent the number three pick for the number two pick and an an additional person. Mm -hmm. So I feel like we did pretty well in that trade. Yeah, not bad at all. Well, that's what's going on in Columbus right now, though, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Well, go, this week, uh, our guest on the show is uh, Jim Merkel. And Jim is a very impressive guy. He's done a lot of really, uh, really interesting things in, in both finance and real estate. A bunch of other stuff, too. So he's, I mean, he's a busy guy. He's the uh, CEO of Rockbridge. And uh, yeah, what did you guys think of the interview? It was pretty awesome to hear about how they've adapted to COVID and that they found some investments that turned out to be way more successful than I even expected. I think that just hearing his outlook on what it looked like within his industry and, and in that realm and how things kind of pivoted a little bit different than expectations was fairly interesting. Mm-hmm. And just his path to uh, growing up within the organization and how he progressed throughout his career was pretty inspiring and pretty cool as well. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, I was definitely impressed. You guys will hear this later, but they bought that they bought that place up in Maine and turned into a real winner for him. And it's just funny how... Even in downturns, people can find kind of the diamonds in the rough, so to speak. 100%. Really great interview. Hope you guys enjoy listening and uh, we'll be right back. This is Conquering Columbus. Hey there, Conquerors. Jenny Brittenbauer of Jenny's Splendid Ice Creams. I'm truly never comfortable. When I'm comfortable, I'm bored. I just have to keep going. Only when you're a little bit scared are you in a place where you're about to learn something. We're explorers, and explorers are making discoveries because they are going places where people haven't before. Urban Meyer. There's one guarantee in this world, and that's hard work will be rewarded. And hard work, you have to embrace discomfort. I love how you said that, live uncomfortably. Donato's Jane Abel. We have a umbrella idea of agape capitalism, which is about doing business and doing it with love and giving back to the community. And I believe in our products, but more importantly, I believe in our people. Bellatonia CEO, Doug Oldman. There's this genuine pride for things that were born and raised in Columbus. And that's awesome. At the same time, there's this beautiful Midwest humility. People don't necessarily care about who gets credit. Cameron Mitchell of Cameron Mitchell Restaurants. One of our goals is to be better today than we were yesterday and better tomorrow than we are today. And that goal stays the same 24-7-365. This is Conquering Columbus. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Conquering Columbus podcast. I am one of your co-hosts, Mike, 
And uh, we got Tim and Josh here with me as well. How are you guys doing today? Hello, hello. I'm good. Pretty good, man. It's a sad day. Yeah, other than that, yeah. you had to go straight to it, huh? Uh, yeah, you know, you got to go right to the problem. <laughs> the, the elephant in the room, the Buckeyes man. did not do well in the playoff yesterday. We're all very sad. <laughs> That's one way of putting it. Right. Well, you know, it wasn't the best game we've ever seen. Yeah, it was tough. I left when it was 21 to like 14 or something. So as far nah, as I know, we didn't do man, that bad. What a, what the a, game ended when I he, left the room. He's just admitting <laughs> that he's a terrible fan. Yeah. I was wondering if, if you guys it. were going to be watching it because, you know, him, him going to Michigan, but then wrestling at Ohio State, you know, that the, the split love and then you being from, where are you from again? Uh, I don't know. I can't remember. <laughs> and then being a transplant, like, do you still, do you feel like you have going there like that same, like tie, like it's life for us. Oh, that grew well, up yeah, here, you I, know? I think it means it, so much. I've always, so for me, right. I've always bought into like the team and the environment. So like after wrestling at Ohio state and, and just being here for 10 years, I'm completely bought in like full on Buckeye. I don't even, I'm last time I was in San Diego, I can't even remember, but, um, we well, had, that's enough of that conversation. Not as much as our guest. He was right. there. <laughs> yeah, he was at. The He's game. a little more hardcore. So than our guest, yeah, our guest today was at the game, and uh, we're really excited to talk to him. It's uh, so just to introduce you to him. His name is Jim Merkel, and he's the founder and CEO of Rockbridge, a private investment firm headquartered here in Columbus and focused on the hospitality industry since 1999. Rockbridge has made more than 260 real estate and hospitality investments in 38 states, worth over 8.5 billion dollars in total capitalization. And in 2011, Jim also founded RBHD, a leading hotel development and construction business that has done over $1.4 in renovation and ground-up construction of hotels. So really excited to have Jim on to talk today about Rockbridge, the hospitality market, and more. Welcome to Conquering Columbus, Jim. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, it's really exciting to have you here. So what was it like being at that game? It was great. It was a great environment and it was a great first quarter, first half. But it was uh, it was interesting because there were only 13,000, I think, total, mm -hmm. but 7,000 fans and it felt great. It, the environment was great and it was great football. It just, the wrong team had not quite had the, right the upper direction. hand. <laughs> yep. Yep. Well, so Jim, one of the first places we like to start is just uh, get to know a little bit more about you and your background. So maybe, you know, as far back as, hey, where you went to school, kind of the, the highlights from growing up till, uh, you know, your, maybe your first career job. No. So I, I went to the university of Michigan. So that would get that out of the way really quickly. Well, but you I, know. I okay. grew up in Columbus. <laughs> so I grew up in Columbus and, um, ended up at Michigan, but as my wife likes to, uh, give me a lot of crap about, I'm a high state fan. So <laughs> one of those, uh, people that have no home. You right. know, Michigan fans don't want anything to do with me and Ohio State fans don't understand how I could go to Michigan. It's just a bit of a conundrum there. Exactly. But it was a great school. It was a great experience, but I always loved Columbus and and had an opportunity to come back here right after school and and uh, and took it. So growing up, were you in an entrepreneurial family or, or what did your parents do, siblings? Yeah. So uh, interestingly enough, my mom came from uh, her, her family immigrated from Greece and, you know, my grandmother I was really close with and she was a very entrepreneurial uh, woman. She she left at 23 to come to the United States by herself with a guy she had just met nine days ago, married him and came to the United States. And she was always just uh, a can-do, make-it-happen person and, and fearless in many ways. And, and, um, and so got that DNA and then my my father was uh, always entrepreneurial and did a lot of investing on his own, you know, as an adult. And one way to f spend time with my dad was uh, was to, you know, spend time with him looking at companies and understanding uh, the stock market. And that's how I, 
you know, at 10 years old, I started investing, you know, a hundred dollars or whatever. And, and, um, just got a, uh, you know, a passion for, uh, investing. I had a, an investment, my first investment, and it was, a in Avon products of all things. And, uh, my dad was, a uh, uh, charted the stocks and it went from $20 to $60 and I made like $400. And I thought that was the greatest thing ever that I didn't do anything <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and it grew in value. And so I just uh, got involved that way. So you go to Michigan, you study finance, I'm assuming? I did not, actually. I was a history major. I was getting a ton out of my liberal arts classes and I, I knew I was going into business and wanted to do that, but met a guy who ran his own company and he believed in a liberal arts education where you learn how to learn. And then once you're ready to specialize, you focus on those specialized skills. And And so I became a history major. And that was uh, controversial in the in the family at the time, but because they didn't understand it. And it was uh, probably one of the best decisions I, I made. So you get done and you come back to Columbus directly afterwards. I did. And there's already a job opportunity waiting? No. Well, I had interned with Bank One Capital, which ultimately I came to work for as an analyst and was, uh, I don't know, I think employee number four or five in the group. And, um, but I interned with them the, the summer before I graduated and had a great experience and they offered me a position. And because I was a history major, I knew I wanted to get into investments. I, uh, I thought it was a great opportunity to get that work experience. And I was going to go, uh, go get my MBA at some point. And then I just fell in love with, uh, what they were doing. And Rockbridge started from this group that I joined at Bank One Capital and four of us, you know, founded Rockbridge uh, in 99 when Bank One, who owned our 80% of our company, got bought by another bank. And so it was really fortuitous for me. I was 25 and my partners were 20 years older than I was and, and just was the right place, the right time with the right group of people. Our sponsor is Waveform Music Group. Andy and Carlin have been working with us to take the production of Conquering Columbus to the next level, and Josh and I cannot be happier with the results. Outside of podcast production, Andy and Carlin are experts in songwriting, music production, and sonic branding for companies of all sizes. And to learn more about them, head to their website, createwaveforms.com. That is createwaveforms.com, and tell them Conquering Columbus sent you. So Bank One gets bought out, and the question I have is, was there no opportunity to stay on there or did they just basically say, hey, we're rolling up the assets and sorry, you guys are out? Yeah. So I've been blessed to have like really good mentors. And one of those mentors was a guy named David Muse. And David Muse, who's an amazing guy and taught me a lot. His company, Muse Rinker, Chapman, Anderson Brooks, was bought by Bank One. And the way they set it up was they were basically an off-balance sheet subsidiary of the bank. Very unconventional, but very entrepreneurial in how they set that up. There were like six companies that spun out from Bank One from that subsidiary that was the, it was called Bank One Capital Markets. And it was because of how it was set up and how entrepreneurial it was. And so when the, when the merger came, it was unconventional and the merging company didn't know what to do with it. And so the natural thing to do was to spin off the business. And we were one of those businesses that got to take over control of the business and see if we could make it work. So you joined the team with your new partners. And what does that process look like in the beginning? I'm sure, you know, a little while back, so maybe harder to reflect on, but 
you remember the early days and, and what you were focused on and kind of where you added value where everybody else had 20 plus years of seniority on you? Yeah, it uh, feels like yesterday. So time flies. The youth was definitely the, the youth and just not being afraid to be aggressive and understanding that we had a reason to exist in our, in our business. We had an established business in our marketplace. Uh, people knew who we were and, and uh, we were successful at it while we were affiliated with Bank One. My partner, who was the CEO when we spun off, a guy named Ron Callantine, he was, you know, the senior guy. He was 20 years older than I was and had the gray beard and the experience. And and we were just really close. And he, uh, uh, I would push him and he would push back. And that tension, which uh, was what enabled us to grow and the value that, you know, that I brought to the table was, you know, seeing things a little bit differently. And to his credit, now being senior and um, and having people that work for me in, the, in a similar way is he let me push him. He enabled it. There was never a question of where it was coming from. It was always coming from a good place both ways. And we'd get into a knockdown, drag out argument or disagreement. And 30 minutes later, he'd walk in, want to go grab a drink? Yeah, let's go. And we would we would think about what each other said, and then get to the right answer. It wasn't about my way or his way. And so it just really worked. And the two other partners were uh, just high integrity, great people, um, really blessed that I I got super lucky. I was 25 and got to start a business with three other seasoned, experienced people that had high integrity and valued me. So talk a little about what some of those decisions early on were centered around. I mean, you guys are obviously making investments in the hospitality industry at that time. I'm, I'm assuming that that hadn't changed. And, and what did your day-to-day kind of focus on? And how did the uh, focus and strategy of the organization evolve over time? The first thing that we did was we, while we were with Bank One, we focused on a number of different asset classes. We were called the Real Estate Investment Group. But Ron Callantine and one other gentleman on the team, they had been involved with a hotel company in the 80s. They started a hotel chain that was here. It's called Pickett Suite Hotels. They grew it to 14 properties. So there's always a hotel investment skill set that a lot of people didn't have. They didn't have that understanding from the investment side of how the business actually worked. So when we started Rockbridge, we focused 100% on hotels and put all our resources to leveraging that strength and competitive advantage we had. And we were able to just continue to grow based on that focus and reinvesting all our resources into driving our competitive advantage in in hospitality. It seems like coordination between the partners was really, really key at your group. I mean, there was a, a lot of just trust handshake and that we just always had mutual confidence that we'd get to the right place, even when we were in disagreement. Again, like I, I'm sure it happens, but you hear a lot of partnership horror stories that, you know, as the business grows and is successful, that's not our, our company. I, I uh, got blessed by having great partners. So you doubled down on hospitality, you know, as a team and as you group, you know, you really dive into that market. What did you find? So what were the challenges? What, what, what popped up? Like how did, how did things progress from there? Well, one of the unique things about hotels that uh, make it interesting 
is the operating component. It's a, a operationally intensive real estate asset that has a lot of leverage in it. So when you catch the leverage right, leverage can work both ways. It can work to your advantage. The operating leverage, you know, is what our goal was to pick up distressed assets and fix them, align them with what the consumer wanted and catch that growth and, and positive leverage and, and then sell the investment. And so that knowledge of being on the other side of the fence, so if Ron was here to, uh, tonight, he would tell you made every mistake in the book. Uh, and I just got blessed to, to know which mistakes to stay away from early on. And then I've made plenty of my own. You're not taking enough risk if, you, if you're not making mistakes. But that's what we did. And, and we continue to do that and continue to leverage that. And one of the things that I tell people all the time, I tell our investors, is that we're in business for two reasons, is that owners love to take money out of their properties and not reinvest it. And then consumer preferences change. And what happens in hotels is that over time, the demand of the consumer, they want something different. And you have a physical asset that may not be aligned with that consumer and you got to align it. And that's what we try to do. We try to buy the asset, you know, with the ability to reinvest in it and then build the business because it's better aligned with what the customer wants. So how's the team grown and evolved over time? I mean, when you started, you know, you're, you're one of four and how do you begin to progress and add more people to the staff from there? Yeah, we, uh, we were blessed. We raised our first fund in 2000, uh, our new fund, and then we're on fund eight now. So, um, you know, as we've grown, you know, we, we've tried to be strategic and grow smart. And, you know, that happens with uh, time as you evolve and mature. So um, the team is 80 people today, and we probably the biggest change was in 2008, right as the global financial crisis was uh, was hitting we had grown a lot from 2000 and uh, from 2000 to 2008 in about 2007 we realized we needed to do something differently because we were a four person partnership and uh, we needed to make decisions faster and and um, and so we did a reorganization that was that was when I became CEO and Ron retired and then the other two gentlemen stayed on as owners, but working within the company. One was the CFO and one was the general counsel. And so that reorganization that we did was really timely with the global financial crisis. And it was at that point that we got much more strategic and I, and I could have a bigger influence on that just from that point forward. So how, how do you shift that strategy? What, what are the things you looked at? And in, in, because obviously, you know, from 2008 till now to go from four to 80 people, there was a Something, something played out well. So yeah. what, what, what did you see in the market at that time that led to the growth you see now? Yeah, we always had a reason to exist because the, the knowledge of hotels on the investment side and, you know, with the capital, the banks, the lending community, there was always a gap there. And we fill, we fill that gap. And we just continued to get better at it, build deeper relationships and Ultimately, any business is solving a problem for somebody else. And there's capital needs for every, every investment. And so we can partner and provide the capital that's needed or the investment partner that's needed. And then as we've grown, we add more value to that as we bring more support. We're trying to lower the risk for the partner by bringing our infrastructure to 
you know, to the, the opportunity. And we just build on that. I mean, that, that is, uh, you do a lot of one-off good deals. Uh, and this is one of the things I, I share, even as we get a, a lot of strategic planning, the underlying investment has to work every time. And obviously every time is, you know, not what actually happens, but we're 90% of our investments have a 10% return or better. Our, you know, our goals to the investors are north of that, but we're trying to every single time make a good investment, make a positive return on and provide that consistently to our investors. And so at the end of the day, it's the underlying investment decisions that you make. And then we've grown, we've had to get more, um, you know, build more infrastructure to make it easier to do what we do as we get bigger. Every company has a scaling issue. At some point, there's a, a scaling problem that with, with your business. So you have to start to look at things and do things differently. At the same time, do them differently, but still not lose that entrepreneurial investment skill because it does solve a lot of mistakes. If you keep making positive investment returns, people keep investing with us. We're going to take a quick break here to thank one of our sponsors, the Burlett Family Foundation. The Burlett Family Foundation is committed to serving as a trusted partner and resource to organizations striving to improve our community here in Columbus. All right, let's get back to the episode. What have been some of your most uh, successful, I guess, companies? Do you do companies as well, or is it mainly just real estate? Well, mostly it's hotels, but we've uh, we've invested in uh, a number of uh, operating companies, and we've done a number of uh, startup companies as well, but mostly the 288 investments, most of those are done one or two deals at a time. So very transactionally intensive business. You know, so we've got, we've had a lot of successful transaction, but one I'll mention that, you know, that is, uh, you know, one that did really well through the current crisis we're in was a, a hotel in Maine that we bought. And this hotel was in the same family for 142 years, 70 acres on the coast of Maine, 142 years. We did a deal in Portland, Maine on a hotel, and we met a local hotelier there. And he had been tracking this hotel, knew the owner, been tracking this hotel for 20 years and 10 years actively. And then all of a sudden he caught the investment and um, she was ready to sell. She had gone through the global financial crisis. she she was the last living descendant of the family, and she decided to sell. And we uh, took one step onto the property. And literally, if your stress level is a ten, you step onto this property, you look at the ocean between the buildings, and it's a five. I mean, there's just something, you know, spiritual about the 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 location. And and there's some really beautiful parts of Maine. It's amazing. And so it's called the Cliff House, and we made a a huge investment into it. And um, and the team up there is amazing, and the the goal was to be the number one hotel in New England, and I think we're getting uh, we're getting those accolades, and and it it did really well through COVID. It was one of the investments that our investors were really scratching their head about because people a lot of people don't think of Maine as being you know I, I teased our investors that they thought it was on the moon that it was, but it's only an hour and 15. This hotel's hour and 15 minutes north of Boston. And so the irony of it is that that, that hotel did the best through COVID to date because it was 70 acres and it was a destination yeah. resort and people were wanting to get away even, you know, even during COVID to those, to those places where they felt like it was safer. So you talk about the underlying asset 
having to work. So when you look at a certain position, whether it's that hotel or another deal that comes to mind or, or, or just the general deals, and you look at, you know, the appreciation and the cash flow standpoint, do you guys say, hey, we need a return based on current state, and then we're going to apply our kind of blueprint or sweet sauce to the table and hope to optimize the cash flow side of things? Is that kind of how the general gist of it works? Yeah, basically, you know, when, what I shared earlier about money not going into the property and then consumer preferences changes, think of that for every, every hotel is in a different cycle of its own, of where it's positioned and how it's kept up or reinvested in. And so, you know, our probably, our core business is buying those hotels that we say are underloved and then leveraging our balance sheet and our vision for the property to position it uh, not only correctly, but then eliminate all the objections. What we're trying to do is take away all the flaws, and you can do that physically. You got to buy it right, and um, and so that's what we try to do. And our, that's what I would say is our our core process of creating value. From time to time, you get just a good buy from a timing standpoint. Like the property in Maine, we got a great buy, but rather than just make a great buy and sell it. We made a great buy and then put a an amazing vision to it to take it from a two-star property to a five-star property and, you know, invest a significant amount of money. Basically, that discount that we got on the on the purchase enabled us to de-risk making that big vision move and uh, and it worked. That's an extreme example of of that, but in we're doing something to fix a flaw of the physical property and make it more appealing to the customer. And so outside of just analysts on the team, I'm assuming you guys have a team of support staff that will then provide the resources that you guys kind of infiltrate into the different assets that you're purchasing? Yeah, exactly. We're the investment group and development group. Um, we also partner with other development groups and then we'll bring a management company or a management company that has identified an opportunity will bring us into the deal and so the the day-to-day operations of the strategy and the and the vision are executed by that third-party management company and we own a couple and we've owned a few over the years you know 75% of those are done with third-party groups that we've known some of which for 25 years and still doing business with them and the development part, that didn't start right away, right? That was that was something that you then yeah. founded later on. And yeah. how, how did that spin out? Yeah, so what I quickly realized, so I took over as CEO in 2008, October 2nd. I think Lehman had just buckled and the, the market was upside down. And, and so as I stepped back, one of the things that I had realized through the global financial crisis shortly thereafter was our money was going into the physical plant and, and executing this vision, but thousands of decisions were getting made after we made that investment. And we didn't have our own team there tracking it. And so what I quickly said was, wait a second, we're the ones that are harmed the most if dollars don't go to the right places. You can't get the dollars to the right places if you're not right there at the table. And so that's when we started RBHD, which stands for Rockbridge Hotel Development. And so it quickly became RBHD. That's what we did. And, and it has enabled us to make investments in the property that we might not otherwise have made during that renovation cycle because you kind of have one shot 
to mobilize the renovation and invest the dollars. And there's a lot of leverage that you can create then that do one of two things. Well, create a return on investment and make the property more profitable or two, take a major risk, downside risk off the table. And so we look at it both of those ways and RBHD has been critical in enabling us to to do that. JME Hospitality, your hospitality design partner. JME Hospitality works with food service facility owners, operators, and development pros to improve the overall efficiency of customer experience and the profitability of customer operations. JME has been consulting in the hospitality operations space for over 45 years providing solutions for schools and universities, healthcare institutions, hotels, resorts, and more. They also have extensive experience working within the design, construction, and manufacturing sectors. JME specializes in helping with a variety of different problems, including the COVID effect, redesigning the customer experience to protect their clients and the public during the pandemic. JME is passionate about serving the community you live in. They're doing this by supporting cancer research as well as youth outreach. And JME is offering a free consultation to all Conquering Columbus listeners. Just visit jmehospitality.com. That's jmehospitality.com. And mention the Conquering Columbus podcast to receive your free consultation. So earlier you mentioned, you know, COVID-19 and how it's affected some of your investments, but Obviously, there's a lot of trends going on outside, like within the market and just in general with people, right? People are moving towards Airbnb and all these other applications and that traditional hotel, right? You mentioned it earlier, right? The, there's shifts in what the consumer wants from a hotel over time. So do you see some of those shifts that were accelerated by COVID-19 sticking? Are people going to be more often looking for hotel rooms that are more separated, more isolated? from other guests or, you know, are there other, other trends that you're seeing that you think are going to shape the direction of the market moving forward? Yeah. That's what makes hotels so interesting is that it is a consumer product. And so trends are always changing. The hotel guests are looking for something different today than they were looking for 10 years ago. And so I've been having a lot of conversations with investors over the last nine months and giving them you know, our view of COVID and it, what happens during these times, we believe is that trends are accelerated and things that should stop being done, get put to, put to bed. And so we don't operate, we never operate pre-COVID, post-COVID, pre-global financial crisis, expecting the world not to change. The world is constantly changing and that's what makes it interesting. It's, it's what enables entrepreneurs to create value. And so it's in that change that we can create value and where we look for it. And in a strange way, events like COVID are huge opportunities for our firm and for others going forward because it's an inflection point of change. And, and, um, and those that weren't prepared going into it from a sustainability standpoint and investment standpoint will lose their properties. And those that survive that will take advantage of it. And so the trends are 
there are a lot of trends. There are a lot of trends that started before COVID, but certainly the biggest one I think is being mobile from a workforce standpoint and being able to work remotely. I mean, it people were working remote. We had our our first remote employee in 2000, you know, and and we're much better at it today, you know, and and I think a lot of people are much better at it. And it was a trend that was coming, but this was an inflection point where people were forced to get comfortable with it. And so that's going to change the dynamic of travel. And we don't think from a raw demand standpoint that it's going to change the trajectory of hotels. You know, people are social. People want to be together. There's an energy and a collaboration that's required. There's a training and we'll get through this and and the type of travel will change. And so I think that's interesting. And, and I think that there's going to be a lot of opportunity associated with it. Like if you have a remote workforce, there's going to be maybe more inbound travel to the corporate office than there was before. And so maybe it changes the direction of where the travel, travel happens that uh, there's less uh, and then they're going to go see their customers or they're going to train. They're going to do high value travel and it's just the market getting more efficient. And then one of the areas that we've been actively investing in over the last probably 10 years is in the independent and boutique leisure side of of the business and where we might invest in a urban hotel, but it will have resort or leisure amenities where a rooftop pool and a big food and beverage program, big kind of living room and a place where people can live like they would live residentially. And we're seeing through COVID, those hotels are doing better than our comparable business hotels that don't have those leisure amenities where people want to be. I think that's going to accelerate and you've seen it through COVID. Uh, The one segment of the business is leisure travel and leisure travel is basically when you decide to do travel for your family or whatever you want to do independently. And it's very, uh, you know, it's very American in that I'm comfortable with this risk when I choose it myself uh, and I'm going to take that risk, whatever that might be. Everybody's making different choices, but that's the one segment of, of the business that is is traveling and is comfortable traveling, whereas the corporate and the group the group events, you know, you can't have that. And the companies don't want to be insensitive and put their team members in, in what could be perceived as uh, harm's way. And so until that business, that side of the business isn't going to come back until office, you know, companies are comfortable bringing employees back to the office. And get comfortable with that. So this could dovetail based on your kind of boutique strategy you guys have transitioned to a little bit recently. And I'm sure it's a question you get all the time about just how you guys fit within the play of Airbnb and whether or not they're a a complement or a competition to you guys. I would assume maybe it's a little bit of both depending on what assets you own. How does that play into your business model and strategy? I I think it is complementary. I don't think it's an existential threat to hospitality. I think it, you know, I smile about it. it. It is... Uh, the ultimate entrepreneurial uh, business that got started. Um, here's a asset that people have that they can't monetize, and it's become a brand in of itself. But it's a different experience than a hotel experience, and a lot of people are confused by the number of brands that are out in the marketplace. There are 
hundreds of brands, right, in hotels. And Airbnb, I consider a brand and a segment of travel and, and stays. Um, and, and so all these brands are trying to meet a customer demand. There's a segment of the market that they're trying to satisfy, and that's the brand is their interpretation of what they think is going to be the most profitable or the most appealing to the customer. And and so Airbnb has created a brand around uh, that started as just somebody's bedroom and has now become a, you know, international brand with more room nights uh, satisfied than Marriott. And they've created an experience. They're also booking in hotels now. So it's people have value the brand that's been created at Airbnb, and they go there to find a hotel or a, a home to satisfy their travel needs of wherever they're going. And so I think that's just a reflection of what is out there all the time, that things are changing and people are trying to figure out how to satisfy what the, what the needs are of the, of the market. The other thing that they proved, which informs our independent strategy of investing in that segment, they proved that the owner could go directly to the customer and that you didn't need a distribution channel from a big brand to do that. And so they took technology and they married up an individual and a host and they brought them together in a direct way. And it's a more efficient distribution channel than for owners than the brands in some cases. And so on the independent side, you want to build that relationship directly with your customer and create an experience that uh, is unique and where you can be entrepreneurial and what amenities and what uh, what you do in the in the hotel to create that unique experience that's different than a than a brand uh, or a a large brand. We're also big investors in Marriott and Hilton properties, and those brands are valuable when they're really clear to the customer as to what they're going to get. So, like Residence Inn is a is a very strong brand and very successful brand, and and will remain so because it's very clear to the customer what they're getting when they go there. So. Airbnb is an exciting, and I think there's going to be more companies that uh, emerge in hospitality that could be an interesting either resource to our hotels or an interesting investment opportunity. Hey, everybody. We're going to take a quick break here to talk about one of our sponsors, Hybeck. It's actually just me and Tim in the booth because, well, Josh is on his way over to the restaurant right now. So unluckily for us, we don't get any special treatment. I don't think he's bringing us back a pizza I don't or think anything. so. I'm a little jealous. We love Hypeck. I mean, I go there all the yeah. time. Their hot honey pizza they got going right now. Yep. That's Man, what that I was going to say. As soon oh. as we had him on the episode, I called in before they even left and ordered it and picked it up on the way out. And it was the best. We're talking about the restaurant, but High Bank's a lot more than just a restaurant. They do still whiskey and gin and vodka. They've got all kinds of cool stuff. I mean, they brought in a couple of different options for us to try recently. And I really like this Midnight Cask. It's a mixture, I think, of whiskey along with a port wine. And it kind of tastes like a Manhattan, but it's like double the strength. 
If you haven't listened to the episode yet, listen to the episode. I mean, the story behind the organization is great too. So yeah, it's a bunch of local entrepreneurs that just have a passion for making good food and great drinks. They just launched a thing called the Whiskey Society too, which I joined. And if you really like booze, it's worth checking out. It pays for itself just in the entry fee. And then you'll get cards for drinks every month. They put on events right now. They're on Zoom, but teach you how to make drinks, tell you what to use, why you use those things. It's definitely for the whiskey enthusiast. I've enjoyed my membership so far. That's for sure. So if you guys like High Bank, if you're looking for a restaurant somewhere to watch the game, if you're looking to put in an order for a pickup, check out High Bank, man. Their food's great. They're great people. Yeah. And we love their drinks. And get the hot honey pizza. Get the hot honey pizza. I All promise right. you will love it. All right. Now back to the show. So something I want to talk about before we get into, you know, some of the final questions of the show here is not only are you guys, you know, focused on your business, but it sounds like Rockbridge, from what I've heard, is, is focused on the community as well. Philanthropy is a big focus for your team, right? Very much so. So what are some of the projects you guys have done from that perspective? And I know that you yourself actually have started a uh, group called RTRX, which has helped support Pelotonia yeah. over over the past yeah. few years. Yeah, so we've, uh, we've always had uh, giving back at the core of our business. My mentors were great examples of that, my family. Um, and, you know, it's not satisfying just to make money. I mean, that's not... It's how how do you solve problems and how do you make the world a better place? And we've always tried to reinvest in the community, not just from a dollar standpoint, but from a time and energy. It's like, how do we use our gifts and our blessings to to give back? And one of those areas was started. I was a big brother and uh, I'm a big believer in just access and awareness that kids if they're not familiar with something, can be intimidating going into an office or going meeting somebody successful. And what we want to do is just break that down. And and that's what Big Brothers does. It like, no, you, you can do that too. This isn't unattainable. This is something that is a learned skill like anything else. And and so Big Brothers were the largest fundraiser for both for Kids Sake, which is their largest fundraiser. We've raised over a million dollars for Big Brothers. Through Bowl for Kids Sake, we promote matches and bigs. And then through that belief that just providing that mentorship and access to kids that need it, Christo Ray is another you know offshoot of that, which is more direct around they're bringing kids, you're sponsoring kids to uh, go to school and they work one day a week in your office. And so it's um, for the semester. And, and so We've gotten involved in that. And and then RTRX is another where I got invited to um, an event early on in Pelotonia with from uh, Steve Steinauer and, and Michael Caligiri. He was the original CEO of the event and sat there and listened to him. And Caligiri, I walked away saying, that guy's going to cure cancer. And I'm not going to cure cancer, but I can raise money. And that's when we came up with the idea. We don't want to do anything small. We want to make a big impact and came up with, we can leverage our hospitality connections to bring dollars into Pelotonia from outside of Columbus. And, you know, we believe fundraising in Columbus was a series of half-lives where, because, you know, if I ask one person for a hundred dollars and they get 10 people that ask them and how do they decide who they're going to give money to, there's a limit to how much one company or individual in Columbus could. And so we we started a conference, an event that was around leadership and innovation. And that kind of grew to where now we've raised over $5 million for, for Pelotonia, where 100% 
of the proceeds of that event go to fund high-risk cancer research. And that um, what I found through that, which was was interesting, is that if you can get into companies' business budget, not their philanthropy budget, is that where you provide a business benefit, then there's more dollars there. And so companies in hospitality, they go to these conferences and they send their companies, they sponsor them, and, and these private companies are making a lot of money just from the sponsorships and the event fees, but really everybody's going there to speed date and have 10 meetings in three days and um, or more than that and, uh, and network. And so uh, that, was the, the, that was the goal. And we found people really resonated with the purpose of the event and they got to do business while they were doing good. And, and so it grew, grew quite a bit. That's phenomenal. I mean, so $5 million in, in, you know, that time frame for Pelotonia is huge. And obviously, you know, everybody here in Columbus has a lot of pride in Pelotonia, I think. Yeah. So, well, Jim, I think that's a great place to kind of pivot towards our last question of the show. It's centered around the theme here on Conquering Columbus, and that is live uncomfortably. And without telling you too much about why we picked that particular phrase, uh, what do you think of when you hear it? How does it apply to your life and career? Um yeah, you know that uh, I think about risk taking. At the end of the day, like putting yourself out there and believing in yourself, you got to be uncomfortable, or you're not taking enough risk. And then you got to believe in yourself that you can solve it. So when I think about living uncomfortably, I I think about my grandmother. Honestly, like uh, I think about this all the time. That the decision she made when she was 23, she met a guy. She left her family. She left her country. She went to a country she didn't speak the language, and with a individual she just met. And I think the courage that it takes to do that, she epitomizes living uncomfortable. And I think all the time that there is no decision in my life that will ever rise to that level. And I think about that all the time and it uh, kind of brings things into perspective and I think makes me uh, a little bit more courageous in, in taking risk, being a little bit uncomfortable. Take risks, believe in yourself. I, uh, I like the advice. Well, Jim, thanks so much for joining us. It's been a lot of fun. We appreciate you taking the time to tell your story here on the show. Awesome. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Yeah. And uh, Conquerors, thanks so much for tuning in. If you enjoyed that interview, you want to hear others just like it, hit that subscribe button down below on whatever app you're listening on. We appreciate y'all tuning in and we'll talk to you next week. <laughs>